Welcome to this episode of the Pharma Exec Podcast. I'm Meg Rivers, Editor-in-Chief of the Pharmaceutical Executive Magazine and your podcast host. The Pharma Exec Magazine is a multimedia publishing brand that brings you the latest commercial insights to master the science of success. On this week's episode, I speak with Chris Fox, President of Novartis Gene Therapies. I chat with Chris about her journey into the world of pharma, her role at Novartis, her work with gene therapies, commercializing gene therapies, a bit about her personal life, and what her team at Novartis are proud of in 2022. But first, let's hear a quick word from our sponsor, and then we'll be right back with the interview. Hey there. Andy Studna, co-host of the Applied Clinical Trials podcast here. Check out brand new episodes of the ACT podcast every two weeks on Tuesdays at 10. And you can find past episodes plus much more by logging on at AppliedClinicalTrials.com. Hello, listeners. I'm here with Chris Fox from Novartis. Thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, my pleasure. All right. My first question for you is, could you tell us about yourself? What has your journey into the world of pharma been like? And did you see yourself working in this industry? That's a great question. So, I mean, in short, I feel super fortunate. I was one of those lucky people that graduated from university and this was my first kind of real job post-university. So I worked, you know, many, many years, 14 and, and older, but this was kind of the first one and I was a sales rep. And in the course of the last 25 years or so, I've worked at small companies, you know, startups, all the way to very large multinational companies and worked in small but mighty teams and also, you know, very, very large teams in the thousands. And I'd say, you know, one of the things that for me has probably been the most formative has been the breadth of roles that I've been able to experience from a commercial perspective. So across the companies that I've worked for, I've had the good fortune of really experiencing lots of different elements of the commercial model. And, you know, that's kind of profoundly influenced how I've ended up here. And healthcare, I don't think I necessarily predicted that I'd be in it, but I think from just a life journey perspective, I've been profoundly influenced by science and innovation. But for me, I'd say my principal motivation on that is is the effect that you can have on people. And I don't mean just patients, certainly that's a big part of it, but also kind of the people that you just work with every day. So being kind of alongside of them day in and day out and seeing how their lives progress, how they develop both personally and professionally has been probably the biggest thing that motivates me. So I have three branching questions off of that. (laughs) Um, The first one I did want to clarify is like you said, right out of college, you jumped into the industry. Where did you start? Like, where did you get your feet wet? Yeah. So as a representative in Indianapolis, Indiana, and the company was Rome Polonc Roar, which later got purchased by Aventus. So it was kind of a mid-sized company, French-owned company, and I had missed a window of all of the expansions because it was in the 90s and ended up, you know, getting a, a choice between Buffalo, New York and Indianapolis, Indiana, both places I had never been. So I chose Indy just because it was relatively close to home growing up in Wisconsin and tacked a truck literally and, and moved to go be a rep. Before we officially started recording, you were talking about how you had moved to different places for your roles. Was that something you always wanted to do that you're like, hey, like I'm, I'm willing, let's go check out this culture. Let's go do this thing. Like what led you to, I guess, go to all these different places, which I imagine probably influenced your approach to leadership or maybe impacted how you view the world, et cetera. You know, I would say I didn't necessarily intend, I was open to it always, but I spent 13 years at one company, Takeda, 
And I didn't take any, you know, assignments anywhere else. It was, we were kind of a wholly owned subsidiary in the U.S. So I didn't set out that way. And, and I actually started moving internationally much, much later in my career. And I had kind of thought I missed the window because I had children late. And it's been such a wonderful gift. And so it just goes to show you that you can do it at any time if you're willing and able. And it has absolutely influenced how I think about things and I think your leadership approach, because just because one style works with a certain culture or in a certain context, I don't necessarily think that it parlays very easily and you have to be mindful of that. And so that has been incredibly formative for me as well. You had said you had a breadth of roles. Like I think you said you started in sales. What were, if you can remember a couple of examples, like what were some of those roles and how has that impacted your leadership style and specifically your role at Novartis? Some of the most meaningful roles are the ones that you have to do just to get to know the business. So, you know, very fundamental marketing roles, data analytics, value and access, training. I spent a great deal of time twice actually in sales operations, which seems very opaque, but it's actually the running of the back of the house of the business. So you understand kind of the intricacies of of what a sales force or marketing team needs. Those have been all very meaningful. I'd say ones that are a little maybe less traditional were managing the commercial merger of two like-sized companies. So everything that was commercially related from the number of SOPs that we had to what was going to be the look and feel of our field sales force and and how did that work. And it was a year-long project and it was, I mean, extraordinary because you got to really dig into business development as well as just the inner workings of, of the operation, which was really, really fun and taught me a lot. So I think all of these types of experiences kind of prepare you for a very global role like the one I'm in and give you confidence in some cases, because you certainly aren't going to know everything, but that you can surround yourself with the right people to help you make those decisions. I love that. Okay. So let's talk about your role at Novartis. It's my Mm -hmm. understanding that December of 2022 is your one-year anniversary as president of Novartis Gene Therapies. Congratulations. Thank you. What did you expect your responsibilities would be when you first joined and how has your role evolved over time, if at all? And granted, it's been a year, you know, it could, you know, evolve from now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, it goes quickly. I will say I, someone sent me a congratulations text this morning and I said, it feels like 10 minutes and 10 years all at the same time because we live so much life, you know, in these jobs, all of us do. So I will say, I, again, I feel fortunate because what I kind of expected is what it turned out to be. And I was very motivated by the chance to join this team. First off, because of the transformative science, I thought this is amazing. What I didn't expect was how close we would be to the patient. And this is a you know very small patient group. We've served 2,500 of them and their families, but you really get intimate with their journey and understanding what they go through and all of the stages of, you know, from diagnosis to even post-treatment. You know, we follow many of our families even to this day and can kind of see the progression and you know, the baby, young child resuming normal development, it's incredibly motivating. So that was not a part that I expected to be so incredibly moved by because I've been in this industry a long time and met lots of families and participated in lots of patient journeys. But this one was incredibly special. I'd say the second thing that, you know, reflecting upon it in advance and and then now was I expected the business to be complex. But what's been really thrilling, I think, is the problem solving that goes hand in hand with that is how are we going to fix this? Because or sort through some of the problems that are just natural. And then the third thing that I was, I think, really looking forward to and and has not disappointed was the team. They're extraordinary, really, really talented people. And I mean, I I think our industry is is very blessed with, you know, high intellect and 
really smart people. But this team is, they're just so organically willing to learn as we go. And they've taught me a lot of that, you know, of, of that there is no playbook for this. So we're kind of learning it together. So I think the second big thing kind of is building a sustainable business. It's unique because we only have one brand and that's not typical in a business like ours. So, you know, I think advancing internal innovation that comes from Novartis Bench, but also potentially, you know, attenuating that with external innovation and doing some acquisitions. The last one is, I think, the thing that fuels this all, and that's continuing to evolve our culture. You know, I think coming out of COVID and, and I even joining the team during COVID, it's complicated, right? And so I think there's dynamics and, and parts of inclusion and people feeling like a sense of belonging. Those are all things that we continue to work on as we kind of come back out of this and get to a new normal. You had mentioned earlier about specifically in your group, which I think is the cell and gene therapy group that you were really close with patients and you had a lot more interaction. Is that because of the type of treatment, like the large molecule sort of a stuff versus small molecule? It's an API, you dispense it pretty quickly and there's not a whole lot of patient interaction. Is that where that kind of came from? So I think it's a couple of things. One is that diagnosis and even patients getting diagnosed particularly early is very difficult. So a big tipping point to that is newborn screening. And so we do a lot of work with patient advocacy organizations and trying to unlock kind of that idea that, you know, a parent kind of knows that something's wrong, sometimes really, really early in the baby's life, that they can't hold their head up or they're losing just muscle control, things like that. They don't know what it is. And if, if you go to a pediatrician, they might not know what it is. And so helping with kind of that advocacy so that they have a place to go and, and get diagnosed and understand. And that's a big advancement as part of their journey that they're on. I'd also say too, I, I think, you know, not too many years ago, patients had no options. So through the patient advocacy organizations, we start to get to know these families. And as they're identified, I can't tell you how many heartfelt videos and letters we get and to see a baby that, you know, the mom and dad thought wouldn't be able to walk and maybe not breathe on their own or maybe not hit their second birthday, now riding their bike or playing with their sibling or blowing out a candle even because a lot of them have to be vented. It's extraordinary. And so you kind of, as I'm saying this to you with the hair on my arms standing up, because you just get super close. And so it's not traditional. A lot of the other businesses I've been in, even oncology, which is profoundly moving, you don't get this kind of up close and personal look from the patient. And it's such an important you know, motivator to what we do. I love that. Thank you for sharing. I would like to talk a little bit more about cell and gene therapies, because I feel like it's a pretty big topic in the industry. So you lead Novartis bringing the gene therapy specifically to patients. What has your history been with working in gene therapies and what do you see for the future of gene therapies? Oh, it's a great question. So, and one that I can't answer with a crystal ball, but I'll do my best to kind of tell you what I think is ahead of us, you know, and my experience is brand spanking new in gene therapies. I hadn't had a role that had gene therapies until I joined Novartis. It was one of those moments where you're, you know, talking to the company and I said, guys, if, if you want an expert in this space, that's not going to be me. So we should talk about what the needs are of the role. So I have been in massive learning mode and still, quite frankly, have so much to learn. But I do think that we are starting to get Zolgensma being one of them, proofs of concept of, hey, can these gene therapies be commercialized? Can we get access, particularly globally? What does that look like? And, you know, you can see in just following some of the other companies that are in this space, some of the struggles that they've had and, you know, some of the barriers that just exist. So my prediction, and I guess maybe it's as much a hope as it is a prediction, is that, you know, we continue to kind of just advance how this works and, 
you know, appealing to health ministers across the globe and sorting out what their, you know, detailed issues are so that we can in kind give access to patients that need it. And I think the more gene therapies they get approved, hopefully it will open some of those gates and will change the dialogue from cost to more value. And I think that's a space that, you know, we uniquely can contribute a lot to society and to the health and welfare of many patients across the globe. I spoke with another representative from Novartis. His first name was Patrice. I'm forgetting his last name at the moment, but he talked a lot about health equity. Yes. Do you want to talk at all about health equity, specifically in the gene therapy space and some of your goals and hopes there? Yeah. So, I mean, I think a lot of it starts with even trial design and recruitment, and it's certainly a very important and meaningful goal because you want to try to represent the populations in which we hope to serve. And so I think that that goes hand in glove with kind of our whole approach. I also think health equity is important relative to what we were just talking about, and that's access. And how do you unlock those barriers and, and make it so that a baby that's born at home, for instance, in a country that they don't go to the hospital, how do we get that child diagnosed? And I don't know that we've cracked the code on some of those things, but it's certainly part of our design of understanding when we go very local to understand what their needs are and, and how do we build, help them think about an infrastructure and an ecosystem, because these babies are so sick that that's a big part of it is the pre-care and the post-care. The gene therapy is you know, the intervention, but there's so much around it because they're so sick. So we have to have that so that you know all patients, not just the ones that are able to on their own, figure out a way to, to get gene therapies. Okay. Let's talk about you and your personal life. You have three teenagers, I believe, and obviously your global role at Novartis. How do you balance everything? (laughs) Well, I think it's a great question. I don't know that I have a good answer for it, but I think, you know, honestly, I think you don't. I I think there's sometimes that work trumps and then there's sometimes that, you know, your family life trumps. I, and I think I've gotten better as I've gotten older too, to not evaluate that on a day-to-day basis and more play a little bit longer game where you're evaluating the balance and and your ability to sustain, you know, both what you want for your family and what you want for your career at the same time. What I'd say too, though, is, you know, I have an incredible support structure. I've been married 30 years to my husband and without him and how he is super open-minded and motivated by the things I do. And he always says, you love your career. And so it's, it's my responsibility to support that. It's awesome. And, and even our kids, you know, they're teenagers. So it's that time where they're kind of figuring out themselves, I see that it has a dramatic effect on them in, in funny ways where, you know, they'll be leaving for school. And if I haven't left the house yet, they'll stick their head in and say, mom, good luck on your meeting, or I hope you have a great day. And, you know, if they know I'm meeting a patient family or something like that. that. (laughs) And so you see that kind of reflection of yourself and the choices that you've made in kind of how they see the world, which I think is incredibly cool. And so it speaks to that you can, you know, I don't say have it all, but figure out what that means for you. Cause for everyone, it's different. And I'd also say too, just personally, that I think having kids for me made me a better leader. Well, I think intellectually, I always try to be empathetic. I think when you're a parent, you have a different vantage point of, cause there's always something going on. It's always intense that couple with all the work intensity. And I have found myself being much more reflective about everybody has something, even if they don't have children, they have a sick parent or spouse or you know, something that they have to tend to that's meaningful and important to them that's outside of work. And so it has you be more open-minded about the intent someone's showing up with, that it's not you, it's probably something they've got going on. And no, no, I think that that's a big part of it. So 
I tend to focus on the good things like being grateful and not so much worrying about keeping the checks and balances of, you know, what wins and what day. What do people say with regards to, I think it's people expect parents, especially mothers to give 100% to work and a hundred percent to your kids, but you only have 100% to give each day. So sometimes it's 50, 50, sometimes it's 80, 20, you know, like there's yeah. only so much of that percentage as you can give. And I think embracing that, you know, it's, as I've gotten older, like I say, I think that you have just better context and sometimes it's a fatal miss on both sides. That's the worst day. <laughs> it's you're like, oh my gosh, you know, that was not good. Not a good outing on either side, but yeah, I think overall just kind of accepting what it is. That's all part of the journey of it. Mm, or the rare 100% self-care days. <laughs> well, yeah, there's probably not enough of those quite frankly, but for any of us, you know, yeah, that's, that's the case. Okay. So as we close out on the year right now, as we're recording, it's 2022 and we're looking out to 2023. What accomplishments are you and your team most proud of? And what are you most excited for, for next year? Oh my goodness. So this year has been, you know, a really banner year for us. We've, from a, I guess, quantitative perspective, we've reached the most number of patients, 2,500. We've advanced some of those things that I told you were enablers, like approval in 45 plus countries access arrangements and 35 plus. So those are kind of some of the enablers that we knew were the big things that we needed to make sure happened. You know, underneath that all newborn screening, as I talked about in the U.S., for instance, we're at nearly hundred percent. So that's amazing because we know then that every baby that gets born has a better chance of getting diagnosed early. I'd say on the qualitative side, our accomplishments are just as meaningful because the team has gone through a lot of change well before I got here and, and even in the year that I've been here. And so I think you know, I, I have a lot of pride and I know they do too about how they've just led through it and managed the change and continue to be really agile and um, navigating, you know, the integration with Novartis and all of these things, you know, on top of staying true to their true north of, of the patient and being driven on that. So I think, yeah, there's lots of, lots of great things. And I think we'll parlay that into 23. I mean, I think we're going to not start from a new playbook. It's, it's building on a lot of those strengths. And, and as I mentioned before, trying to expand and scale our geographic footprint. How do we benefit from being part of such a large company in Novartis, leveraging that and, and making our reach, you know, feel more impact. I'd say for the future, you know, I mentioned it a little bit on kind of creating a sustainable business. I think that's a really important part of us is not just in continuing the journey of Silgensma, but then kind of what's next and what products do we add to our portfolio, whether from our own pipeline or external innovation. And kind of seeing where that goes so that we can leverage the capabilities that we've built and take advantage of kind of those skills, you know, and in advancing that. And then I think the last thing is the culture bit. I think we have to constantly be vigilant about that. It's one of the things I hold dear and am somewhat protective of, and, and I don't control it or own it. I don't set the weather, but I feel like we have to keep our eye on that and make sure that we're building a place that people want to continue to be, you know, bright and successful. They can go be that anywhere else. So I want them to choose here and to make this their place. I'm going to ask a super uncool journalist question, but yes. I'm curious, how would you like, you know, a lot of folks will talk about culture and they want to have a really great company culture that keeps great employees and makes, you know, great people want to join the team. How do you, for your team, create that? So I think there's a couple of ways. I think for me personally, I carry it down to being very transparent and authentic. And sometimes that's not always, you know, good news. It's the real meat of things when it's tough. I think inclusive, 
when people feel like they have a vote in it and can participate in our future, because there is no playbook for this. And so for me to think that one person's going to control that, I think would be a miss. I think that's a big part of the culture of inviting people in. Clearly, it's amazing what people together can do. They can solve any business problem. So it's like they have to want to and to get that discretionary effort. And then I'd say the last thing is, you know, kind of creating a sense of belonging. And, and I think the best way to do that is that everyone's really clear for their role. How do they contribute to the strategy and the vision that we've set for ourselves? You know, they don't as much get to participate in that. So if we've set a goal for ourselves, you know, what's the part that only they can do? And when people feel centered and feel like they contribute to the overall success or not of the company, I think they're just much more dialed in. They have skin in the game, as it were, and and it makes for a wonderful culture where you're thinking about how can I help the person next to me versus how can I get you know a, a great review and accelerate my career. It's just a different kind of you know currency. So not a bad question at all. I love that one. <laughs> well, I really appreciate your response. It was very insightful and appreciate that. So, all right, now it is time for our leadership tip. What is one tip on leadership that you'd like to share? Oh my goodness. So I don't know. I mean, I don't know that anyone's qualified to give you a leadership tip, but I have benefited from a lot of advice throughout my career. And one of the things I wish, you know, I had known when I was younger is just don't feel like you have to know everything. I mean, I think it's so important to just benefit from the things that people to your left or right that know something different than you. And, you know, when I was younger, I felt like, you know, you had to be a subject matter expert on so many things and you're kind of hard on yourself, quite frankly. And so I would say, give yourself the space and the grace to not feel like you need to know everything and enjoy the constellation of experiences when you're the subject matter expert. And sometimes when you're not, there's benefits in both of those because invariably you'll be in a seat where you're not the smartest person in the room or you don't have the most content and you'll still have to lead. I love that. Thank you for sharing. And thank you so very much for joining us today, Chris. We appreciate you uh, sharing your time and insight. Yes, it was wonderful. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Farm Exec Podcast, where we take you behind the headlines to provide expert tips from industry leaders. Remember, you can always find us on the web at farmexec.com, on Twitter at farmexec, on Instagram at farmexecutive, and on YouTube at Pharmaceutical Executive Magazine. The views expressed on this podcast do not reflect those of FarmExec, its parent company, or our advertisers. For editorial questions or to get in touch with the editors, please email us at farmexec at mjhlifesciences.com. For sponsorship opportunities, please go to farmexec.com slash advertise. Thanks again for joining us and we'll see you next time.